Try that again. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Jeremiah. We are in Jeremiah chapter 14 this morning. Jeremiah chapter 14. If I seem out of sorts, it's because uh, my wife has been gone for five days. But at 1.30 this afternoon, that should uh, be remedied. So pray for that. Traveling mercies. And uh, it is not good for the man to be alone. (laughs) Jeremiah 14. That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah in regard to the drought. Judah mourns and her gates languish. They sit on the ground in mourning. And the cry of Jerusalem has ascended. Their nobles have sent their servants or their children for water. They have come to the cisterns and found no water. They have returned with their vessels empty. They have been put to shame and humiliated, and they cover their heads. Because the ground is cracked, for there has been no rain on the land. The farmers have been put to shame. They have covered their heads. Even the doe in the field has given birth only to abandon her young, because there is no grass. The wild donkeys stand on the bare heights, They pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail, for there is no vegetation. Although our iniquities testify against us, O Lord, act for your name's sake. Truly, our apostasies have been many. We have sinned against you. O hope of Israel, its Savior in time of distress, why are you like a stranger in the land, or like a traveler who has pitched his tent for the night? Why are you like a man dismayed, like a mighty man who cannot save? Yet you are in our midst, O Lord, and we are called by your name. Do not forsake us. All right, here's verses 1 through 9 then to get us started. Let's open with a word of prayer, asking God the Father to sanctify our thinking and to bless our study of his truth on this day. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, we thank you for the book of Jeremiah. In many places, Father, the messages are not pleasant. Uh, The application of divine discipline and judgment upon an idolatrous people. Father, uh, uh, like the hymns we just sang, Father, these, these messages get very pointed. They get very convicting. And I ask, Father, that we would be convicted on this day, that we would be humble before your truth, that we would be responsive to the circumstances of judgment as you put them forth in our lives. So, Father, teach us this doctrine that we might make the appropriate application. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, the chapter actually, uh, the, the bulk of what I intend to speak on this hour is going to come from those first nine verses. Uh, we'll kind of try to pace it and see to make sure we don't run out of time before we uh, fail to get down to, to verse 22. But if we, do, if we do run out of time and not quite get all the details in those later verses, we're okay because the concepts are going to come up again and again and again and again repeatedly through these chapters in Jeremiah. So uh, particularly dealing with false prophets and the adversarial nature of false prophets will come up again and again and again. And so in some respects, um, uh, what we do today is going to be introductory anyway for the chapters that, uh, that follow. 
But the Lord gives a message, and I haven't read yet, verses 10 through 12. The, uh, the content of what the Lord delivers comes in verses 10 through 12, even though the formula introduces it in verse 1. In other words, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and yet we have nine verses or eight verses of Jeremiah's lamentation, followed by the response And so verses 10 through 12 is the response. The word of the Lord was uttered to Jeremiah in verses 10 through 12 in direct reply to Jeremiah's intercessory prayer in verses 1 through 9. And I think in both cases it's appropriate to view each soliloquy, Jeremiah's soliloquy of 1 through 9, and the Lord's response in in verses 10 through 12, uh, both being prompted by the Lord himself. So put the words in Jeremiah's mouth for verses 2 through 9, but understand that those words also came from the Lord, that the Lord himself was provoking Jeremiah's soul to lament those words, to pray that prayer. All right, and I think we do real well with it. So the word of the Lord came. We have the formula introduction there in verse 1, and then again in verse 10 with a thus saith the Lord. And so we have a lamentation. We have an intercessory prayer. Jeremiah is praying for his people, and he knows good and well that the drought is because of their sin, that they are under drought judgment as a consequence of their own sin. And they are suffering, their children are suffering, their animals are suffering, the the crops are suffering, and all of this is a direct consequence of their sin. And Jeremiah is confessing and Jeremiah is praying and he's probably the only one in town confessing and praying on behalf of the rebellion that's taking place. We'll talk about that as well. The reply is not a good one, all right? The answer is short and sweet in verses 10 through 12. Uh, Thus says the Lord to this people, even so they have loved to wander. They have not kept their feet in check. I think about uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? Prone to leave the Lord I love and in, uh, in that hymn. Um, this people has loved to wander. They have not kept <clears throat> their feet in check. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and he will call their sins to account. That is not a happy message. That is not the answer to prayer that they wanted to receive. <clears throat> by the way if you do like to sing come thou fount you got to sing it in the red hymnal because it's different lyrics in the blue hymnal and uh, in the blue hymnal you don't have the prone to wander lord i feel it so <clears throat> in any event um here's the answer the lord does not accept them uh he will remember their iniquity he will call their sins to account that's not a happy message I, I prefer the verses that say, uh, you know, blessed is the man to whom his sin is not reckoned. Uh, you know, the man whose sin is not held to his account. And so how do we balance the verses we like and the verses we don't like? They're both true. Well, what's the application here? And how can we reconcile these things? And are you and I ever vulnerable to a, to a verse like that? Would there ever be a time that you and I, personally, individually, or corporately in a nation like the United States of America... Would we ever be the recipients of a message like that, whereby our sins are called to account and judgment is now irrevocable? It is absolutely irrevocable. Verse 11, So the Lord said to me, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. 
How many times has the Lord commanded Jeremiah to quit praying for the Jews? Have you been following? Have you been keeping track? This is now the third time in the book of Jeremiah that he has been told, stop praying for this people. When they fast, I am not going to listen to their cry. When they offer burnt offerings or grain offerings, I am not going to accept them. Rather, I am going to make an end of them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. And so there's the Lord's reply. The Lord replies in verses 10 through 12, the word of the Lord was uttered to Judah in direct reply to Jeremiah's intercessory prayer, verses 1 through 9. All right, so let's get some detail on this. And I think there's a lot here that we can glean, uh, in particular, the environmental impact statement that's made in, uh, in this chapter. Jeremiah's lamentation amounts to an environmental impact statement. Actually, it's the second time we've had this come up. I made mention of this a couple weeks ago in chapter 12. When you and I fail in our responsibilities, then the creation itself is going to groan. Creation itself suffers the consequences. We saw birds and trees and animals back in chapter 12 and verse 4, you might recall, a couple weeks ago. And maybe I didn't stress it as much as I should have. <clears throat> How long is the land to mourn and the vegetation of the countryside to wither? For the wickedness of those who dwell in it, animals and birds have been snatched away because men have said he will not see our latter ending. So you look at the environment, you look at the birds, the animals, the trees, you look at the water. Here's a drought circumstance in chapter 14 that's been assigned to Judah. And the answer, if you really want to be a biblical environmentalist, the answer is a sin issue. All right, The answer is as a culture, we need to be living the word of God. The consequences for their idolatry was assigned to creation itself. The drought, the animals, the trees, the plants, the children that suffer in the consequence here. And so when you're looking at verses 2 through 6, again, we highlight here the, uh, the ground is cracked. There's been no rain on the land. The farmers have been put to shame. They're not, they, I mean, they're not reaping a crop. They've been planting, theoretically, uh, but they've, there's been no water. They're not the, whatever yield they do get is, is uh, tragically small. They've covered their heads. Uh, the doe in the field. I mean, normally you have certain animals that the mothering instinct is built in and they're going to tend for that young one. Uh, not in these conditions. In these conditions, you know, she's happy to, to spit that baby out and then go on her way. All right. Uh, she'll be lucky to find water for herself and grass for herself. There is no grass. While donkeys stand on the bare hives, they pant for air like jackals. And it's pretty vivid here as far as the description is concerned. And you'll note, the cause for all this is their sin. Verse 7, although our iniquities testify against us, our apostasies, you'll notice in verse 7, our apostasies have been many. We have sinned against you. And so this then becomes the issue. As a society, as a culture, God is dealing with the Jews in Jerusalem uh, corporately as a, as a corporate people, a people that are called by his name. And so Jeremiah's lamentation amounts to an environmental impact statement testifying to the Lord's faithfulness as per Leviticus 26, 19 and 20. If you ever study the cycle of discipline that's, that's found there in Leviticus 26, the five cycles of discipline, or some count six cycles of discipline, where that sixth final cycle is national destruction. All right? Uh, if you're not familiar with it, let me just give you two of the verses right here in uh, verses 19 and 20 
Oh, Leviticus 26. I encourage you, read the whole chapter. Read the cycles. This is normative. This is a pattern. It starts with Israel, but it applies to Gentile nations as well. Godless nations come under discipline. And when you start to see increased stages of that, you start to realize we are closer to our own national destruction. And unlike the covenant nation, the Jewish nation of Israel, they have an eternal promise of restoration. We do not. If, if the United States of America is destroyed in the fifth cycle, we are not promised a return, as Israel is. The Jewish nation is promised a return. So uh, you'll note, and in the, in the description here, you'll, you'll spot in each of these uh, applications, there is a repentance opportunity. And you'll see um, it comes in stages. And so like in verse 18, for example, if also after these things you do not obey me. So you see that? There's a, there's a repentance opportunity there. With the, some of the earlier steps, each of these uh, cycles of discipline is designed to prompt repentance. And so if repentance happens, then the discipline can, can end and, and God can restore them. But if they do not obey me, then... Well, the next cycle gets worse. Then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And so the next cycle is worse than the previous cycle. I will also break down your pride of power. I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength will be spent uselessly, for your land will not yield its produce, and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. And this is the drought condition being described here as the, as the uh, sky turns to iron and the earth turns to bronze. The, the poetry of this, the, the language of this, speaks of the drought conditions. See, And uh, there were times in Israel's history they went through this. There were times, uh, for example, in the, in the life of, of Elijah, when he's having this conflict with the prophets of Baal. They were under a drought circumstance until... Uh, the battle against those prophets and the rain gets turned back on again. But they had three years of drought in, uh, in the days of, uh, of Elijah. And so the uh, principle here is being played out during the uh, last days of the uh, Davidic throne in Judah. Now, true confession identifies the iniquities, apostasies, and sin for what it is. True confession, if you're going to confess, if a nation's going to confess or a person's going to confess, either way, true confession identifies the iniquities, apostasies, and sin for what it is. You just spell it out. And notice, he's confessing the sins of his entire nation. Again, back to uh, Jeremiah 14 and verse 7. Our iniquities testify against us. They've actually already been entered into the court uh, of evidence. They've already been submitted for consideration uh, everything that we do reflects there, and, and the testimony has already been offered. And yet we're calling upon Him to act for His name's sake. Do you see that also in verse 7? O Lord, act for Your name's sake. When you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why? Because it's His name's sake that's in view. He is not going to forgive us based on what we've earned and deserved. We've already established that. What we've earned and deserved is judgment. What we've earned and deserved is the drought we're going through. All right. So the confession is the opportunity for God then to provide in grace a restoration that we do not earn or deserve. We have to appropriately identify the iniquities, apostasies, and sin for what it is. In spite of every failure, Yahweh remains in their midst. He's still there. 
The fact that they can confess to him testifies to his presence. He is in their midst. The fact that you can go to the throne of grace in prayer, I can go to the throne of grace in prayer at any time, day or night, demonstrates that I'm already within the veil. I'm already in the Holy of Holies. I'm already in the presence of God by virtue of my position in Christ. In spite of every failure, all right? Yahweh remains in their midst. Yahweh is the uh, God of Israel. So he says, O Yahweh, act for your namesake. Verse 8, O hope of Israel, its Savior in time of distress. What beautiful titles. Sometimes I find it's useful just to pray the names of God. Find a different name of God and you know, get, a, get a book that's got you know, 100 names of God in it and then just pick one and make that your name for the week. Say, this week I'm going to pray to Yahweh Tzavayoth. Uh, next week I'm going to pray to Jehovah Jireh. Next week I'm going to pray to Jehovah Rapha. Or just pick a name and dwell on that name. Fellowship on that name. Pray in that name. Here's a couple more for you. The hope of Israel. It's Savior in time of distress. And these based upon not what they've earned and deserve, okay? Based upon the unconditional covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here's what is at play. Because they are under a conditional covenant whereby God, that's the law of Moses, the conditional covenant, whereby God, if he's going to stay faithful, he has to judge them for their sin. Under the Mosaic covenant, if he's going to stay faithful, I'll say that again, he has to judge them for their sin. But under the unconditional covenant to Abraham, again, if he's going to stay faithful, he has to preserve them eternally and bless them in Christ for all eternity. And so both are going to be in view. We have to understand both sides of that. And I'm not going to let you leave here and go to the potluck until you understand that this hour. It might be a very long hour, but I'm going to get this concept across so that we understand both the conditional covenant of Mosaic law and the unconditional covenant of Abraham, all right? And how it applies. And also, where we can recognize the difference between how God deals with individuals and how God deals with corporate bodies like nations, all right? And there's a big difference there as well. So, we've got to deal with it. The hope of Israel, her Savior in times of trouble. Now, for the third time, Jeremiah is commanded to stop praying for his people. In case you've forgotten the first two times, they were in chapter 7 and verse 16, chapter 11 and verse 14. And now for the third time, in chapter 14 and verse 11, the Lord says to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. Now, anything you have to tell your son to do three times, (laughs) what, what does that indicate? He probably wasn't very obedient the first two times, okay? Uh, or maybe if he did stop praying, he only stopped for a season or stopped for a, a short time, and then he resumed to praying again. Why do you keep going back to praying for, the, for this people? I told you to quit praying for him. I told you to quit praying for him. And uh, how much of this is mosaic in the sense that uh, Moses defied the Lord? When, when the Lord said, Moses, step back, I'm going to blast these people, and Moses stepped up and said, Lord, I can't do that. How much of this is, is uh, Jeremiah defying the Lord, saying, Lord, you don't mean that. I'm going to keep praying for him. All right. I wonder sometimes, related to uh, the, the temptations of the Lord, when uh, uh, you know, the Lord tells 
his disciples, you know, how are we going to find bread for all these people? And he already knows what he intends to do, but he's testing his disciples. And here's Yahweh telling Jeremiah, quit praying for these people. And Yahweh knows what he's going to do, but he's testing Jeremiah. And Jeremiah continues to pray. I find that to be uh, significant. Now, with respect to not hearing and with respect to um, iniquity, how does how does the ledger work? How does it, how do the uh, you know, I'm married to CPA. I know what it means. I know what when, when you're keeping a ledger and you've got your assets in one column and your debts in another column. You got black numbers and red numbers, and you want your black numbers to outweigh your red numbers, right? Um, I like the fact that all of my iniquity was laid on Jesus Christ. That to me is priceless. I mean, how do you you, you can't trade the world for that? And then His righteousness is imputed to my account. Praise the Lord for that. I'm going to go to heaven because I have the righteousness of Christ. I don't have my own righteousness. My righteousness doesn't get me there. See, and so my sins are not imputed to me. My sins are imputed to Christ. But here he's saying, I will remember their iniquity. I will call their sins to account. When does that happen? How does that happen? What is the context for that happening? And could such a thing happen today? Would I, should I be afraid of that today? All right. And here I think we'll do real well if we start to divide out the issue between personal sins versus national sins. How God deals with individuals, how God deals with nations. And the consequences for sin that happens on a nation is different from our personal salvation. All right, but let's start though with the covenant aspects. I'm going to start with the covenant aspects first. The conditional Mosaic covenant that they are breaking demands that the Lord remember their iniquity. He has to judge them. He has to shut off their reign. He has to put them through these cycles of discipline. And ultimately, He has to take them to captivity in Babylon. His hands are tied because He is party to a covenant that is conditional upon their obedience or their disobedience. So the conditional Mosaic covenant that they are breaking demands the Lord remember their iniquity and hold them accountable for their sin. And hold them accountable for their sin. And so they are going to go through it. He will judge them in this way. And if He doesn't judge them in this way, it would be faithlessness on His part. God Himself would be shown as a liar. God Himself would be faithless to His own promises under the conditional covenant of Mosaic law. And and. The minute God can be faithless to a promise, it's game over for all of us, right? That's not the God we serve. That's not who He is to ever break a promise. Now, there's so many places we can we can demonstrate this with here. Let me just uh, say to connect Jeremiah fourteen ten. Let's look at Exodus twenty four. We could look at Exodus nineteen. We could look at a lot of places, but maybe Exodus twenty four is the most explicit just for a short little uh, description of this here exodus 24 verses 7 and 8 i should spend the whole hour in this chapter let's just preach this um because this is uh to moses 
He says, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. This is before, obviously, Nadab and Abihu burned their strange fire and got blasted for it. Uh, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord. This is because of chapter 19, and I think the, the failure there. But they shall not come up, nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, yeah, this big pack of liars right here, unanimously saying, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Can you believe that? One of the biggest lies in all the Bible right there. Because Mosaic law was completely conditional. Do this, I will bless you. Do that, I will curse you. Obey me, disobey me. Enjoy the land, lose the land. All of the conditions of Mosaic law. And coming 430 years after promise. After the unconditional covenant of the Abrahamic uh, covenant, the Abrahamic promise. And so Galatians asks, well, why the law then? Why does the law come 430 years after promise? Does it nullify the promise? uh, May it never be, okay? So they're under an unconditional promise to Abraham and they're given now when they're operating as a nation being redeemed out of bondage, they are given Mosaic law as a covenant blessing or a covenant cursing. And on the conditional criteria of of obedience, disobedience, blessing or cursing, they agree to it. And out of their own lips, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Okay? Don't believe the, uh, the Bible skeptics and the God haters that tell you that they weren't literate at this point of their history. They were very literate at this point of their history. Egypt was very literate at this point of their history. And Moses had the, the finest Egyptian education possible. So he wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as a peace offering to the Lord. I think that's significant as well. We see the role of the young'uns, the, the, the young people that are suffering in, in Jeremiah, that they sent the young'uns to go fetch water at the cistern and there was no water. Here the young'uns are, are worshiping and offering the sacrifices and um, with the multiple generations in view here. And so Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And again, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Man, they're just digging their own, I mean, they're, they're digging it deeper and deeper, aren't they? Now, Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, behold, is this, tell me if this sounds familiar to you. I should have read this last week, or two weeks ago. Moses took the blood and sprinkled on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Now, does that jog any memories? Does that passage make you think of anything? The blood of the covenant which is shed for many? All right. Understand, there's bigger things happening on that upper room on the night in which Jesus was betrayed 
than we usually give it credit for. Things that have nothing to do with the church. Things that have everything to do with Israel and their coming kingdom. It has everything to do, the blood of the covenant which is with Israel for the millennial kingdom. All right. But here's the forerunner to that. Here's the predecessor to that. And it's Mosaic law. So he took the blood and sprinkled on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant. And, and it's not Moses' blood, is it? It's blood not his own. That's significant. The blood of the new covenant is that Jesus sheds is blood his own. Okay? Which the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. They actually are given a vision, a paterological vision of the Father. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God and they ate and drank. And so this tremendous fellowship that they have. This is an amazing forerunner of communion. And this is with Israel even as communion is with Israel for the millennial kingdom, the blood of the covenant that Jesus speaks of. All right. So it's a conditional covenant that they are breaking. And they say they're going to do it, and they don't. What's the Lord supposed to do? Excuse their sin? Say, oh, well, that's okay? No, he has to show himself faithful, and he has to judge them. A couple of subpoints under this. Understand... The Abrahamic covenant, which was before law, and the coming new covenant in the millennium, those are unconditional. And they allow the Lord to not remember Israel's sin. They allow Him to not remember. He says, I will not remember their sin. And under the new covenant, He's free to not remember their sin. Under the Abrahamic covenant, he's free to not remember their sin. Because these unconditional covenants are entirely, I will, I will, I will. And none of, none of the unconditional covenants have any, uh, if you do this, then I will do that type language. It's, it's alien to an unconditional covenant. And so in Exodus 2.24, we've got the Abrahamic covenant there, you recall, um, this is so uh, useful in a lot of ways. People want to know, well, how can a, how can a, a God of omniscience forget anything anyway? <laughs> you know, he's omniscient. How does he forget something? Well, he's omniscient. He's also omnipotent. And he chooses not to remember the things that he chooses not to remember. All right, not a deficiency in his knowledge, but it is a, a, a principle of what he chooses to bring to the forefront of his thinking. And so Israel is in bondage and uh, Moses will be selected to be the savior, to be the the deliverer. And it says in Exodus 2.24, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. That's the nature when when the Hebrew text says that God remembers. And that doesn't mean he was having a Pastor Bob moment where it slipped his mind and he didn't send the email he was supposed to send last week. All right. It means that he brings something to the forefront of his thinking, that he puts it center stage on his omniscient mind 
makes it front and center and immediately starts dealing in a very special way. It's like when his presence is in a very special way at a very special time for a very special purpose. That doesn't deny his omnipresence everywhere else. It just means that right here, right now in the Holy of Holies, that's where he presently is. And he's mindful. He's mindful of his covenant. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's an unconditional covenant. And under the unconditional covenant, God is very free to not remember Israel's sin as he remembers his people. And as he deals with them corporately. As he deals with them corporately. Do you think when he brought them out of Egypt, do you think every single one of those Jewish people was a believer? Do you think some of those Jewish people that came out of Egypt were unbelievers? Unsaved? See, he's dealing with them corporately. He's dealing with them as a nation. He's redeeming a people for his own possession. And it's not connected at all with the individual salvation statuses of the particular Jews and Gentiles that came out of Egypt through that Red Sea. Big difference. All right. The New Covenant of Jeremiah 31. Here's a preview. In some respects, pastors like to teach the book of Jeremiah just because they want to get to Jeremiah chapter 31. (laughs) Okay? There's more to the book than just Jeremiah 31, but it is uh, such a central text to the whole counsel of the Word of God. I, uh, I certainly understand the sentiment. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will uh, sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And as I watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Now maybe I need to reread that verse again. Did you read what I read? Did you notice that every... Every step of divine discipline was perfectly crafted by God's wisdom and his hand was in all of it. I watched over them to pluck up. I watched over them to break down. I watched over them to overthrow. I watched over them to destroy. I watched over them to bring disaster. His sovereign providence was at work in every cycle of their discipline. Because again, God is faithful in the conditional covenant of Moses to judge them the way that they needed to be judged. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. He's going to do away with that proverb altogether. Uh, Verse 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like, so is it with the church? Hello? <laughs> no, it's with the house of Israel, it's with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers and the dad took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. In other words, the conditional covenant of Moses. The new covenant is unconditional and it replaces the conditional Mosaic covenant. My covenant which they broke Although I was husband to them, declares the Lord. 
it's the only kind of covenant you can break. Is a conditional covenant. On an unconditional covenant, you can't break it. There's no basis to break it. Because there's no stipulations on your side of the covenant. You can't break it if, even if you wanted to. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God. They will be my people. And... Um, They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now this is a covenant which allows him to not remember their sin. That's uh, a whole lot better, don't you think? (laughs) That's why that other one is obsolete and growing old and ready to disappear. But now that first covenant was ratified with the shedding of blood, right? Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant, and he applied it on the book, and he applied it on the people. And they agreed to the terms and said, we will do. Well, not so with the new covenant. The new covenant is shed, is the the blood of Christ. And he himself will apply it. Hasn't applied it yet. Doesn't apply it till Armageddon. Doesn't apply it till the second advent. It's been shed, but not yet applied. That's huge. That's what the, the, uh, he was telling his disciples there He's on the night in which he was betrayed. All right. So the Abrahamic covenant and the coming new covenant are unconditional, and they allow the Lord to not remember Israel's sin as he remembers his people, and he deals with them corporately. By the way, you and I have the very same, uh, what do you want to call this? Let's, let's call this sanctified amnesia. <laughs> All right? Uh, sanctified, deliberate forgetting. And if you and I walk in love as Christ loved us, then uh, guess what? Love does not keep a list of wrongs. Oh, how about that? You mean there's some things I probably should choose to not remember if I'm going to walk in love. I'm going to be an imitator of Christ. I'm going to replicate the principle we're seeing here. God chooses to not remember. And he can do so on the basis of an unconditional covenant. You and I can do so on the basis of unconditional love. Now, Mosaic covenant, on the other hand, is conditional. And he has to judge them. Also, let's kind of switch gears. And instead of thinking corporately and and nationally, let's go to the personal level in terms of redemption, redemption provides the blessings of the Lord to not remember sin as he remembers his son and deals with believers individually. Understand that for redemption's sake, it's individual. No one was ever redeemed by the law. No one was ever redeemed by Abrahamic covenant. No one's ever going to be redeemed by the new covenant. Those covenants were for his dealing corporately as a nation with Israel. Redemption is a separate uh, separate arrangement between fallen man and their Redeemer. Redemption provides the blessings of the Lord to not remember sin as he remembers his Son and deals with believers individually. So keep them separate, and I think you do better. Keep them as a separate realm, and you'll do much better. If you try to mash them together, that's when you're going to come up with confusion. 
You mash them together and you might find a verse that says, I'm going to remember your sin and call you to account for your sin. You're going to have a verse like Jeremiah 14 and uh, verse 10 when it says, uh, the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity and call their sins to account. Well, yikes, that sounds ugly. I don't want that. Okay. Well, that's not a redemption passage. It's not dealing with anyone on a personal basis for being saved or lost, for having eternal life. Has no scope whatsoever in terms of personal redemption. This is his dealing with his nation on a covenant basis corporately. So keep them separate, and I think you you do much better. All right? We got passages like Psalm 25, verses 4 through 7, Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. We have passages where God is dealing with people in terms of a redeemer, redeeming them, saving them personally, individually. And maybe um, we have to blame ourselves because we all too often, I think, we take a text like whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved and we take a text out of the corporate national realm, we bring it into the personal redemption realm and we cite it as a supporting text and... uh, and we ourselves are cross-pollinating, right? And we're abusing the original context in so doing. Psalm 25, verses 4 through 7. So here is David, and he's praying for guidance, and this is a personal prayer, as God is dealing personally with him. And you'll notice this is not, as a nation, this is not God's corporate dealings with the rebellious people. So um, I think we can learn a lot here from David's uh, prayer life. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. But when does that happen? You know, we trust in the Lord and, and he does vindicate us, but it may have to wait till judgment day before we finally see it. Are we okay with that? Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. You see how personal this is? This is a believer that's redeemed. He's redeemed. He's born again. He's growing in the ways of the Lord. He's growing in doctrine. And his prayer life is centered on that. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindnesses. For they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Say, don't, don't ever say my goodness. It's not your goodness. It's his goodness. Okay? I was told that somebody here is fond of saying, oh my goodness. All right? Well, fruit of the Spirit includes goodness, and it's not my goodness. Okay? It's God's goodness. It's the, it's the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, here David says, it's the Lord's goodness. For your goodness sake, O Lord. And so we like that. Uh, Here it is, on a personal basis. He is our Savior and he does not remember our sins. Likewise, Psalm 32. Psalm 32. 
How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed, or how happy, Asherah, is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Again, you look at the passage and you ask yourself, now what's the scope of this? Is this dealing with uh, uh, the conditional Mosaic covenant? Is this God's dealing with his nation? No, it's a personal, it's a personal dealing with God and, and his child, with uh, David praying to his Redeemer. And so, no, my sin is not going to be imputed. Are you kidding me? No, my sins were assigned. They were covered. And from an Old Testament standpoint, they were covered. They were atoned and passed over. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Do you ever enjoy your carnality so long you want to postpone your confession? That's not good, all right? Because the longer you postpone your confession, the longer you prolong the hand of God's discipline upon you. And David confesses to this here. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. This is not a nation undergoing national corporate discipline. This is an individual believer that's delayed his confession that actually thought he could get away with his adultery for nine months until the birth of the baby. The thought that he'd covered his tracks when he murdered Uriah. The thought that he was getting away with it until the prophet Nathan shows up and says, you're the man. He says, you're busted. I knew about this. And, and he, he delayed his confession for nine miserable months that got worse and worse and worse and worse. The way he describes it here. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever, heat of summer. I, but then I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide, or I stopped hiding. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of all my sin. All right, and so he's restored. The prophet Nathan says, the Lord has removed your sin, you will not die. Still faced consequences for the rest of his life, but the guilt was removed. All right. In any event, this is this is critical. I hope that we we see uh, the personal nature of this, and that we don't confuse things personally, as opposed to nationally or corporately. All right. Because when the United States of America is judged as a nation, will individual believers be exempt? Or does the rain fall on the just and the unjust? See, just like there were unregenerate unbelievers that walked out of Egypt through the Red Sea on dry ground. All right, now he may rescue us, he may not. He got Lot out of Sodom. He knows how to get his children out of places before the judgment hits. But what if he doesn't? Are we prepared? He got Daniel and Ezekiel out of of Jerusalem in time. But he left Jeremiah there. If God's going to keep a witness right to the very last day, that means his witness has to be there on that very last day. No fun for that witness. But he's there. And he's faithful. So, hopefully we can see distinctions between unconditional covenants and conditional covenant as God deals with the Jewish people as a nation where he does remember their sin, where he does impute their sin, where he judges them for their sin. 
And then, of course, as he deals with them as individuals where he does not remember their sin. I think because he remembers his son. We offer up our prayers in Jesus' name. He's cast the sin behind his back to the depths of the sea. He doesn't want to remember them ever again. But his beloved son is before his face. That's who he remembers. And we're in him. What a blessing. All right. That's the the heavy part of the chapter. The rest of this should go quicker. Verses 13 through 18. Jeremiah was opposed by numerous false prophets who preached their own invented deceptions. Jeremiah was opposed by many, numerous false prophets who preached their own invented deceptions. And imagine when you're the only true prophet preaching this, everybody is preaching the opposite. It kind of hurts your credibility, especially when the people listening want to believe what they're hearing from that other crowd. That's the popular message. That's what they want to hear. The stuff you're preaching, they don't want to hear. So verse 13, But, ah, Lord God, I said, look, the prophets are telling them, you will not see the sword, nor will you have famine, but I will give you lasting peace in this place. Yeah, the peace messages are always popular among satanic communicators. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. It's demonic at best, and it's self-invented, probably on top of everything else. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who are prophesying in my name although it was not I who sent them. This is fundamentally what it is. Uh, we've got a question Wednesday night about taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. All right, It's not about curse words. It's not about vulgarity in your language. This is about invoking the holy name of Yahweh Elohim and how dare you say, thus saith the Lord, or how dare you call him to witness the veracity of your statement. You're making a false oath and the God of truth won't stand for that. So therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the prophets who are prophesying in my name, although it was not I who sent them, yet they kept saying, there will be no sword or famine in this land. Well, guess what then? Since you said this, God's going to put the lie to the father of lies you're speaking for. That's exactly what you're going to get. All right, that's exactly what you're going to get. This is the nature of God's judgment. Like for like in kind, Arnold Fruchtenbaum teaches, like for like in kind, how discipline is double discipline and it tends to be like for like in kind. You said no sword, all right, here's a sword for you. You said no famine, boom, here's a famine for you, twice over. All right, that's the pattern of Yahweh's justice as he validates his people. So they say there will be no sword or famine in this land. Guess what? By sword and famine, these prophets shall meet their end. Okay, that's how they're going to meet their end. And the people also to whom they are prophesying will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. And there will be no one to bury them, neither them nor their wives nor their sons nor their daughters, for I will pour out their own wickedness on them. And you will say this word to them. Let my eyes flow down with tears night and day and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people has been crushed with a mighty blow, with a sorely inflected, infected wound. 
And then where are you going to run? Is running going to help? You're going to solve your problems? If I go out to the country, behold, those slain with a sword. Or if I enter the city, behold, disease is a famine. So you can't win. It's lose-lose. You can run for the hills, but you're going to die out there. Or you can stay here in the city and starve and die of the plague. For both prophet and priest have gone roving about in the land, and they do not know. They do not know. They're completely off the rails. See, Moses had warned Israel to beware such false prophets. Go back to Deuteronomy 18, and you'll see that he was warning them about such false prophets. Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22. Also, by the way, it's a prophecy of the coming Christ. That there's coming one prophet who's like unto Moses, one glorious prophet who's coming that's going to have the final message. Of course, that's Jesus Christ. Once Daniel and Ezekiel were taken to Babylon, Jeremiah is apparently the only legitimate prophet of Yahweh that's still in Jerusalem. Apparently, he's the last man standing of, of the faithful, legitimate prophets in Jerusalem. Because every other glimpse we have from chapter 5 to chapter 6 to 8 to where we are today in 14, we've got some big ones coming up in 23. Hilkiah is named by name and some of his lies. Um, chapter 27, chapter 28, we see some of the, the back and forth. And it's like, uh, it's like Elijah and the prophets of Baal. It's a very public showdown. It's like the Lincoln-Douglas debates, right? I mean, it's like a very public you got Jeremiah on one side, you got Hilkiah on the other side. Or these other false prophets. You got Elijah, you got the prophets of Baal. And uh, there's no fire descending on those altars, but guess what? Here comes the fire on this altar. And then uh, Elijah has all those guys put to death. Now, it doesn't happen in Jeremiah's case. In Jeremiah's case, they have verbal uh, prophecy conflicts. And then uh, Jeremiah is uh, hated and attacked and thrown down a well. <laughs> All right. And uh, Jerusalem is destroyed. The armies of Babylon destroy it. Finally, the chapter is going to close with a corporate confession. And we can read this confession and we think, okay, that sounds good. Now, the response must be great. Next week, we're going to get the response. Because as the chapter closes here, they're going to confess their idolatry. And yet, uh, in chapter 15, they're going to be told, it doesn't help. Your judgment is irrevocable. There's no turning back. So... um, Anyway, read through verses 19 through 22. Goodness, I'm running out of time. Uh, Verse 19, Have you completely rejected Judah? Or have you loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that we are beyond healing? We waited for peace, but nothing good came. And for a time of healing, but behold, terror. We know our wickedness, O Lord, the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Now this seems real. This seems legitimate. They're speaking in the plural. The whole nation is confessing. Do not despise us for your own name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember and do not annul your covenant with us. Are there any among the idols of the nations who give rain? Or how can the heavens grant, or can the heavens grant showers? Is it not you, 
Yahweh, our Elohim, our God, therefore we hope in you. You are the one who has done all these things. And man, you think, okay, all right, you know. If I was a dad and I was my kid confessing, I'd think, all right, he's owning up to it. He's, this, is, this seems genuine. This seems real. All right. So I want to flip the page. I want to go to chapter 15 and think, obviously the Lord had to respond to that. No. <laughs> he says, even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, even the, the two greatest prophets that ever served Israel, even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. They have crossed a line. When you cross the point of no return, what does that mean? It means there's no return. On a national basis, Jerusalem is doomed. And, and they're just now finding out about it. They've actually been doomed since the days of Manasseh. The tipping point came in the days of Manasseh. And we'll learn about that next week when we get into chapter 15. They admit the impotence of their idols, just like the prophets of Baal admitted the impotence of their idols in 1 Kings 18. And yet the response comes from the Lord in chapter 15. No, there is no salvation. This city is doomed. And that's what we'll get to next week. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this study. It's a big study, Father. It's one that... We ought to spend weeks and weeks and months and months, but that's not our format, not this hour. Father, um, I pray that, uh, that you would make these things real to each one of us, that if we've never before considered distinctions between your dealings corporately and your dealings individually, how you deal with nations and, and, and the sins of nations versus how you deal with individuals and in, on redemption terms, Father, how you... Uh, how you not hold our sins against us because you've imputed our, our personal sins to Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would write, help us to rightly divide the word of truth to consider these things, to consider the distinctions between conditional covenants and unconditional covenants, to consider the, the role of Israel and the role of the church and understand our place in your dispensational plan. Father, thank you for the glimpse you gave us uh, today of the blood of the covenant that Moses applied to Israel and the blood of the covenant that Jesus will apply. He hasn't done it yet, but he will apply the blood of the new covenant to Israel at second advent. Father, uh, there is such a depth of teaching to these chapters, and we realize, Father, that uh, the rest of our days is spent uh, with you, line upon line, precept upon precept, a little here, a little there. Father, might today be a day in which we learn just a little bit more, that we might walk a walk that glorifies your Son, that pleases you in all things. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.